0: How many of you have ever traveled internationally? Let's see a raise of hands. Yeah, wow, okay, we've got a world traveler group here. Awesome. How many of you have ever crossed borders when you're traveling? Anybody? Yeah? Not just through the airport, but like literally walked across the border. Anybody anybody done that? Canada doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, right? You enter an area or a building that carries with it a certain cultural and social expectation and connotations, and and then you're moved to another area that may even just be feet away, and all of a sudden you're in a totally different culture, totally different context. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Right? It's strange, isn't it? My sister from Mexico in the back, right? It's strange. When we went to Mexico and then stepped back into the U.S., it's like, Mexico, U.S., Mexico, U.S., right? Right? And so I'll ever, forever remember one particular movement across a border that we made when Kelly and I were with a group. Um, uh, John, you were there, right? Uh, we went from Israel to Jordan. You remember that day? And it's a quite an odd thing. You go to this place and you're gathering under this awning because it's super uh, hot outside. And uh, this uh, soldier, Jordanian soldier, comes out and he orders that you give him your passport. And not just one person, but everybody in the group. And so they take the big stack of passports and they walk into this building, this dark, dimly lit, smoke-filled building. And I have never ever as an adult remembered what it was like as a child to lose a balloon until that moment. <laughs> right? You watch your passport go and you're like, but I need that. Where are you taking it? And it was a very, very odd moment. And many of us were standing there and, and uh, just watching kind of the, the, the context that we were in. Uh, there was almost this distinct difference between Israel and Jordan. And it wasn't to do with the ethnicity. It was just a very distinct feeling. We felt it when we went into Egypt and came back as well. Um, What was so different? For us, we looked at these wonderful Jordanian human beings or these wonderful Egyptian human beings, and each of us have the image of God in us, in a sense. Um, And yet, almost everything, worldview, outlook on life, freedoms, view of human life, interaction with one another, God served, all these things were very, very different. And so there was this stark contrast, so much so that when we drove from Egypt back into Israel, my wife and I both breathed the collective sigh because there was just something about the heaviness of being in this other country. We didn't feel it in Israel as much, as, as much as there were, you know, military soldiers with guns around. It was just odd. It was different. And so this kind of stark contrast and difference in cultures and societies is what God had encouraged the Israelites to be in the midst of the people around them, starkly different. And that difference was then to be an attraction to the world. Not to be different to force people away, but to draw them. And the complete loyalty to Yahweh above all others, and their loyalty to one another, and the actions of their life in righteousness and justice were to be their defining characteristics. That when the world looked at them, they went... You're different, and I want that difference. Yet the nation of Israel as a whole failed, as we see throughout Scripture. And it was due to the evil desires and selfishness of the individuals and the citizens themselves that they couldn't really gather together and do what God was calling them to do. Rather than be a collective people on on the mission of God to reach the world, they wanted what they wanted. And this was so pervasive throughout their history that at the point of Isaiah, they are surrounded by enemies as a discipline by their father God to help them figure out that they are not doing what he's asked them to do. But in the midst of this rebellious nation that collectively is failing in the commandments of God, there was this small group, this small remnant of people that desired so much to follow Yahweh. And as we talked about last week, We talked about how they were a covenant community bound together in longing and hope for the Lord while living a life that reflects his heart of righteousness and justice. We talked about how the church is very similar. That definition works for both what Israel was supposed to be and what we are supposed to be. And so in this one group of people, the Judahites, A people that collectively called themselves the people of God. Within that group, there was another smaller group of people that seemed worlds apart. Those that claimed the name of God's people and actually followed him, and those that claimed the name of God's people and didn't. And this was the situation that Isaiah is speaking to, and this is a very sobering truth for us. But we're not in Judah, you say, we're in Salem, Oregon. And we're the New Testament church. We're not the people of Israel. Yet, guys, this still has great meaning for us today as we look at what I'm calling today a tale of two cities, wrath and redemption. A tale of two cities, wrath and redemption. Let's start again in Isaiah 26, and again, we're going to be covering the same two chapters we did last week, but we'll be going through all of it today. Um, It starts there in 26.1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the feet of uh, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you for when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Oh man, I love that last verse, don't you? My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Man, it is amazing. The older I get, how much it's revealed to me how far I am from Jesus. And how much I don't yearn and desire for Jesus the way I was created to. And yet at the same time, the Lord is gracious and patient with me, constantly beckoning me towards himself and towards his people. And the closer I get to him and the closer I get to his people, the harder it is and the more painful it is, but yet the more joy-filled it is. What a bizarre tension it is to walk as a Christian. But this is who we're called to be, that we're supposed to yearn and cry out to God. And we see in this section right here that God's righteousness has two sides. You can write this down. God's righteousness has two sides, and those sides are redemption and wrath. First, we see here God's justice and his righteousness shown in redemption. Remember our definitions last week. When we looked at this topic of righteousness and we talked about the word justice— words that are thrown around like crazy right now, but often I find that we don't fully grasp them. We talked about it this, uh, this way last week. Righteousness is right relationship between God, myself, others, and creation. Remember the sign of the cross, right? God, myself, others, and creation. And justice is the activity that brings about that restoration of right relationship. So when we talk about doing social justice, What we're talking about, it's almost kind of, uh, what's the word? It's uh, when when you say something twice and you don't really need to? Uh, It's redundant. Yeah, there we go. Thanks. Okay. Loss of words. If I don't write it down, it's not my brain, right? Okay, it's kind of redundant, social justice. Well, justice is to establish right social order. Where there is no needy, there is no oppressed, there is no defeated, but everyone... Everyone is loved and valued because of the creation of God that they are. And that's what righteousness and justice are. So when we talk about social justice, that's what we're talking about. Uh, And the other thing, too, is you you can't have justice without righteousness. And so when people say, I want to bring social justice to the world, but they say it's only going to be between me, the other person, and creation, well, they're missing a giant piece. They're missing the right relationship with God, and so the two have to be very much together to do social justice in a way that just uh, truly serves God. And so we see there in verse 1 in chapter 26 an act of salvation in God's righteousness, and it frames this city in a way that defends the people and protects them and cares for the poor and the needy there in verse 6. It's an amazing metaphor that he gives us. These people practice righteousness and justice. You can go back and listen to the teaching last week. Verses seven through nine, they sit in the way of God's justice, his judgments, and the righteousness that he asks them to do. And when people see the activity of righteousness in action, first by God in his salvation act, and then through his people in response to that salvation, we bring justice to one another, the poor, the fatherless, the widows, the sojourner. When people see this, They are drawn towards that source of justice. They think to themselves, nowhere else in the world is the fullness of this righteousness and justice in place but these people. And so when people see us as the New Testament church acting, not just saying, but acting and living in covenant relationships in a way that's not seen in the world around them, where we resolve conflict differently. We stick by one another through thick and thin, these people are drawn towards the source of that covenant bond because they don't see it in the world around them. They don't see it. So when they see it in us, church, when they see it in us, precious flock, they say that is the Lord of reconciliation. And it draws them. And this is the first part of God's righteousness the redemption by God's amazing act of gracious salvation. He has given us his character. He has given us his heart. He has given us his spirit, his word. It's all a gift that we do not deserve. And we take that and we eat it up. And what we give out is an understanding, an actual image to the world of who God is because of the way of righteousness. Now, this is one piece of God's righteousness, but there has to be the other side, and the other side is wrath. Let's go back and look at Isaiah 26 and 9 again, and we're going to see something interesting here. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Now, we talked about last week how that was talking about, uh, we uh, used the word judgments and looked at it, how it has at its core justice. And so this is the proactive action of God's righteous people. But also in its plain meaning, this is also the judgments of God's wrath on the earth and by his judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. And so this makes sense if we continue on. Look at verse 10. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Now, dads, you're going to know what I'm talking about. If your children are in right relationship, they're acting in righteousness, so to speak. They're walking with the Lord, with one another well, with you and and mom, uh, with uh, their environment correctly and you hop up and you run over to them, what are the kids going to most likely do? Well, in my house, the kids kind of get ready to play, like, right? It's kind of like when dogs get ready, right? You know, huh, let's play, right? Kind of stick the butt up in the air. Yeah, let's go, right? Kids and big men, we the same way, right? Yeah, let's go, okay? And so it's kind of like this, hey, I'm here to play. Now, if you know and you see from a distance that your kids are in sin and they're not acting rightly and you get up quickly out of your chair and you come towards them, dads, what usually happens? <gasps> Whip, we are not doing anything, Right? There's an innate reaction in them that helps them to go, wait a minute, that's not righteousness. We need to step back from that, okay? And it it comes with both love and discipline. There has to be both. Isaiah is basically saying, how can a person know that they are wrong if they just keep receiving favor? Now, as a parent, this makes total sense because without loving discipline, including saying no often to your children, a child will grow up thinking they only need to conform to their own authority. And part of disciplining a child is to help them understand that there is an authority outside of themselves that determines righteousness and wickedness, and they need to conform to that. Without loving judgments and discipline and the walking out of consequences, we don't learn righteousness. We are stiff-knucked people, and we don't walk in sanctification. This is partly why God requires us, as his people, to carry out discipline within the home and the church, the two institutions that reflect his image to the world. Proverbs says really clearly, it's the father that hates his child that doesn't discipline them. Hebrews 12.6 says this, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Church, we've bought into the world's idea that lack of discipline is loving. No, guys, that is just not true it's not true. Martin Luther wrote about seven marks of the true church in the midst of the reformation when he was trying to reform a church that had gone just crazy wild away from the word and among many other things such as preaching the word and communion and salvation by grace. The fourth characteristic of the true church, he said it is a true church that does this. God's people where holy Christians are recognized by the office of the keys exercised publicly. If you don't know what that is, go read Matthew 16. Peter was given the keys of the kingdom to exercise authority in the church, and it's passed on by apostolic authority to the elders of the church. He says that is as Christ decrees in Matthew 18. If a Christian sins, he should be reproved. And if he does not mend his ways, he should be bound in his sin and cast out. And if he does mend his ways, he should be absolved. That is the office of the keys. For Luther, the real church exercised discipline over its members. For Luther, the fake church was lax in this area. Look at what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 6, talking about the unhealthy shepherds of the false people of Israel. He says to them, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Guys, I watch this happen all the time with really loving, well-meaning Christians, and I want you to hear my heart in this. This is not a rebuke, this is a caution. When you have a brother or sister come up to you and go, you know, I'm really, really feeling convicted because there's just no fruit in my life. And you step in and you go, oh, it's okay, What have you just done to them? You have defeated the sanctification of fruit in their life. You have literally set yourself up against the Holy Spirit of God that is moving in them to produce repentance and conviction. And this is the quick reaction of most evangelical Christians. But it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. We've all we're all sinners. Guys, no. Let the conviction sit. Let it sit and do its work. We're all about the Holy Spirit at this church, whether you know it or not. And part of what the Holy Spirit does, a great deal of it, is bring encouragement. And the flip side to that coin is, it brings conviction. And if you don't let that sit, you're fighting against the Holy Spirit. So how do we know, Hans? How do we know when to encourage somebody? Guys, the word's very clear. Very clear. Godly conviction produces sorrow which leads to repentance. Worldly conviction produces condemnation. And so if a person comes up to you and says, Jesus no longer loves me, I can't be part of this church anymore because I am a sinner, that is straight out of the pit of hell and you need to stop it. But if they come up to you and they go, you know, I'm really wrestling with some of Hans's teachings lately. I just, man, he's, he's laying a lot of stuff on us lately and I just you know, I don't have time in my schedule to do all these things or, you know, it's just not that big of a priority to me, then you need to let the conviction that comes from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit sit in their life. Otherwise, you're fighting against the Spirit. There has to be the flip sides of the coin. And Jeremiah continues here. He says, the the leaders, these false leaders come and say, peace, peace, when there is actually no peace. He says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Guys, when I say in here a Christian does not commit sexual immorality, and those of you that are committing sexual immorality are sitting there not even blushing, you're in a bad spot. Repent. It's not good for you. And I'm not going to tell you peace, peace, because you're in danger of hell. Repent. That's what a loving shepherd and a loving father does. And I know it's unpopular, but it's the truth. It's what the Word calls me and calls David and Patrick to do as elders, is to bring encouragement and to bring conviction. Now you might ask, how can these be two sides of the same coin? They seem so different to us. Well, here's the reality. They're both based off of God's grace. Let's talk about that for a second grace is giving that which we don't deserve grace is a free gift it is the ability that God has given us to even hear his word and comprehend it the ability to even repent we can't do it in ourselves we absolutely need the Holy Spirit and the energy to pursue him once that justification has happened it's his spirit breathing life into our dead souls every moment of every day and it is his word which quickens our minds and heart and body to respond to his love all of this is his grace. We've done nothing ourselves, nothing whatsoever. And we even see this. Look at verse 12 of Isaiah 26. Oh, Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. He's speaking of the work of salvation, the initiation of the walk of repentance. All of this is from the Lord, it's his grace. And so, grace given to the repentant will always lead to redemption, always lead to redemption. Take a look with me at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This is the story of Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. I always have this weird image in my head. This is the uh, deep thoughts that go through Hans Rasmussen's head. Uh, I think about how it would look if I were standing there next to him in the tree. All right, we need, like, Blues Brothers glasses and a hat. You know what I mean? I'm the tall one. I'm Dan Aykroyd. He's, never mind. Anyway. <laughs> All right. See, this is why if I stick to my notes, I'm okay. Once I start going off, I'm in trouble. All right. Luke 19. Take a look at verse 1. He entered Jericho, Jesus was, and he p- was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was wee, small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried up and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, okay, the, the rest of the crowd, the, uh, probably the Pharisees, uh, a number of religious Jews, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor... And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Somebody tell me what that is. It's two words. Righteousness and justice. He's living out righteousness and justice. Everybody else is standing to the side going, he's a sinner. And he's like, I want to know you, Lord. Okay, that's a pretty good sign that you're a believer. (laughs) I'll do anything to see you. You call me, I'll come. And when you ask me, I'll respond and tell you the life I'm living, which is righteousness and justice. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You see what happens here? Grace is given a gift to this man. He doesn't deserve the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, but Jesus literally comes and lays on his couch. That is awesome. That's grace that Jesus would grace his home. Zacchaeus realized he was lost and was so thankful for God's grace that he responded by practicing more righteousness and justice than those around him. And this is what happens when grace comes to the repentant. There's redemption. When grace is given to the unrepentant, though, primarily through his word and through the preaching of his word, it will unfortunately lead to the hardness of heart and eventually division. You ever notice this with your kids' parents? You're sitting there and, okay, time for you to clean up or time for you to go brush your teeth or whatever it is. And they, they keep dawdling. And then you say, hey, warned you once, let's go, obey right away or whatever it is you say. And then they kind of dawdle a little bit more. What do you know that you're in for by that time? First time, second time, now third time. What do you know you're in for? You're in for a fight. They're about to wrestle with you, so to speak. They're about to stand firm in their position because you've now given them, hey, let's go, hey, let's go, hey, let's go. Hey, let's go. And then eventually it has to be met. It has to be met with correction because once, twice, the Bible says three times you've gone too far. Remember Pharaoh? He was given the option to let, his people, to let the Lord's people go ten times and submit it to the Lord. But each time the Bible says he hardened his heart. And what did God do? It says that God hardened his heart because he had already started to harden his heart. Well, how does that work? By the preaching of Moses, by the giving of God's word, which is grace to the repentant, it's also seen as wrath to the unrepentant. When confronted with the light, what do you do? This is what uh, Jesus says in John. Turn to John three, John three verse seventeen. Just a little bit to the right from where you're at. John three seventeen. Look at this, guys! One of my favorite verses in the Bible. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Bible is clear, guys. God does not condemn anyone to hell. Notice the next part, though. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Here's what this means, guys. All of mankind was headed on the to mention a secular song that most of you hopefully have never heard highway to hell okay all of mankind highway to hell and man they were driving it was like the autobahn we were driving 90 miles an hour as fast as we can who cares about the consequences jesus is the off-ramp we were already condemned it wasn't like jesus showed up or god showed up and was like okay now now you're condemned no we were literally like born let's do condemnation let's do this thing right And Jesus came as the off-ramp from condemnation. And so not choosing that off-ramp means you stay on what? The highway to hell. You stay in condemnation. He says, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Guys, what is the number one sign from the Garden of Eden that someone is not being honest with their lifestyle? Is it that they come more into fellowship or back away from it? They back away from it. They want to hide. Guys, this is why the megachurch model is so popular in the United States. You can go with everybody else, wave your hands, praise the Lord, and then go home and open up your computer and do unspeakable things. Be terrible to your spouse. Live a life of embezzlement. Live in darkness is because, man, you did your duty. You showed up, but you can hide. That's not God. When confronted with light, you either pull more into the darkness or step into the light. And if you pull into the darkness, that will eventually lead to destruction. And so we can see this. This is the next big point you can write down. God's grace will lead to one of two outcomes, redemption or wrath. Grace affects us one of two ways. It either draws us towards redemption or hardens us towards it so that we start walking towards wrath. And this is all happening, guys. Remember this, within the one people of God, Judah. This wasn't any other nation. This was the people of God. God's salvation was at work and that salvation was creating a people, a city that were redeemed and it was also creating a people and a city that were given to wrath. Let's turn to Isaiah twenty-six eleven. Okay, so we see these two cities. Let's look at verse 11. It says, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. This is back in Isaiah 26, if I lost you. Isaiah twenty-six eleven. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your, for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. For you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead, they will not live. They are shades, they will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. When we look at this, we see the hand lifted up. This is a way of saying in metaphor that God is at work. It's not hand lifted up to smack them. It's not hand lifted up to give them a handout. It's just saying that God is at work. But Isaiah says the wicked do not see it. They're blind to what God is doing. What is he doing? Well, he's saving his people from the destruction around them because he's zealous for them. And this knowledge actually keeps Isaiah at peace. Notice what he says there. Regardless of the fact that enemies are surrounding them and they have been in a form of oppression under these leaders of their enemies these kings of the world, they will die, those kings, and no longer have power over God's true people. God's people can stand in firmness and faith knowing that all the darkness around them will fade and they will stand firm because Jesus stands firm. Now look at verse 15 and focus on it. What has God's salvation accomplished? Well, he has increased the nation and enlarged its boundaries. What does this mean? It means that the salvation of God is not constrained by ethnicity any longer, but through the cross of Christ, God has offered his salvation to all people. This is the enlarging of the tent stakes to build the people that are within the kingdom of God. And this work The salvation that is the free gift of God it culminated on the cross when the father sent his son to die for us to pay for our sins and then he breathed his spirit into the unity of the church to draw them together to go out on the mission of God he's called us freely by his gift into his family he's called us freely by his gift into his kingdom and guys this is one of the greatest needs of the human heart is it not? To be called into a family, to be called into a kingdom. I think we do uh, not a great job of giving the fullness sometimes of the effect of the gospel. The forgiveness of God is absolutely part of the gospel, and it's a wonderful part. But to stop just at forgiveness and then have the person still feel alienated does not solve the longings of the human heart, it never has. What is it that brings true healing in a person's life? Safe, loving covenant relationships. Safe, loving covenant relationships. We cannot become who we truly are until we are welcomed into a group of people in which they allow us to go through the brokenness and the problems and the hurts. One of the most effective counseling methods I have, guys, is this. Sitting and listening and not making a face anytime they say something about their brokenness or sin and then at the end to say well now that i know everything about you i want you to know that i still love you to be fully known and yet still fully loved is the heart of the gospel to know that those sins are dead and buried and gone sent as far as the east is from the west but then also to be welcomed into the people of god that is the gospel you can't separate the two and this is the work of salvation that God has done. He has increased the nation, O oh Lord. He has undone the curse of division and separation that was the result of the garden. Now that seems wonderful, doesn't it? This idea of a unified, wonderful, righteous nation. Uh, it's one I think about often because I'm a pastor and I hope that it shows up in our local church, but yet it seems unattainable, doesn't it? When we look around at our humanness and our humanity, we get very discouraged, don't we? Do you guys ever get discouraged in that? But this is where Isaiah steps in to verse 16 through 19. Let's take a look here. He says, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, But we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. He finishes with, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. I'm about to do something that no sane, mental, healthy man should ever do. I'm about to talk about pregnancy here, okay? But ladies in the room who have been pregnant, I'm guessing that if you went through all of the pain and all of the sadness and there was no baby, what would you feel? You'd hurt. The only way I can connect to this is I've watched my wife go through many miscarriages and I can only imagine what it would be like. In a sense, Isaiah is trying to play upon the idea that all the pain was there but none of the fulfillment. Within their own anguish and pain, they expected something to come from all of the pain, but nothing did. They gave birth to the wind, to nothing. There was no life at the end. Guys, do you ever feel like that? You're walking in righteousness and justice, you're walking in ministry, and you look around and you're like, Lord, is this pain even worth it? In a moment of distress, you cry out for refreshment, but you can find none, and all you can do is manage a whispered prayer. Lord, help. Why, Lord? Why does this seem fruitless and worthless? We can empathize with this. We look around at the supposedly redeemed people of God and we see roots of bitterness, unwillingness to work together towards reconciliation, gossip, envies, mischaracterizations, hurt, and we say, Lord, we are laboring, but it seems like we are getting nowhere. But that is when we remember the end of God's plan. Isaiah reflects on this, and he starts off by speaking of what will happen at resurrection. He says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Notice that he very clearly says, When we try and do it, there is nothing. There is no birth. But when you do it, you give birth to the dead. We can't even manufacture something. God takes death and turns it to life. That's how amazing he is. And here what he's talking about is he's speaking about the end results of his plan. And he outlines four things. You can take a look at those and write them down. The first one here that we've just talked about is the resurrection of God's people. Even though we feel swallowed up by death around us, we must realize that God will redeem his people and he will resurrect them Even though the people of God could not give birth themselves and saw an absence of redemption in their temporary situation, God has been working salvation the whole time. And he would bring about resurrection. God, I might die, we cry out, if this keeps up. And he says, that's okay. I resurrect. I don't know if I can keep doing this, Lord, we say. And he says, that's okay. Fall flat on your face, and I'll stand you up. God is good at resurrection. Secondly, we see protection of God's people from wrath. Let's take a look, verse 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury is past. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no more cover its slain. We're taken back immediately to this idea of protection because we immediately think of going into the ark and the door shutting behind them and God protecting them in the midst of the storm. We immediately think of the Passover, God's people putting the blood of the lamb on the door and calling for the protection of God and going in and shutting the door behind them and the spirit of death passing by. God protects his people. He resurrects them. This is the end result of God's righteousness. But then on the flip side, there also has to be the judgment of the wicked. All that we have ever done or said will become known, and mankind will be held in judgment, and the punishment of God will pour out on those who have not received God's mercy. The Bible calls this the time of Jacob's trouble, a time of tribulation and trial in the world that will come. And lastly, we see here the judgment of the accuser. Take a look at 27.1. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. This is the judgment of the accuser. The word serpent is used here in order to speak back to the garden, that original accuser, Satan himself hasatan in the hebrew it means the accuser or the adversary and so this one will finally be dealt with all of his lies that he has spread throughout the world all of the lies he's embedded in mankind will finally be done with does anybody else look forward to that day and how does he do it he does it with a great and strong sword We don't have time today, but you can read on your own Revelation 19.11 through chapter 21, and you're going to see tons of connection and symbolism to what Isaiah is saying here. Revelation pictures Jesus riding on a white horse, his robe dipped in blood. On his leg is tattooed the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he comes with the authority of a sword, his very word that slays his enemies. And primarily... The adversary. We look at this and we see that God will right the wrongs. God will bring justice. God will protect his people. God will resurrect those that are his. And this brings us great peace and at the same time attention of sadness because he must do both. Third, this is what we see. God's grace will lead to two types of people, the fruitful or the barren. We talked a great deal about this last Sunday, and so I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about the fruitfulness because we did cover that last time, but let's take a look at a couple of things here. I'm going to jump around in 27 a bit, and you'll see that God's grace will lead to two types of people. Now, why did I switch to God's grace here? Because as I talked about, his grace will either draw you towards him in fruitfulness, or it will start to harden you and press you away from him and away from the fruitfulness of walking with him. Okay? Let's take a look at Isaiah 27, verse 2. In that day a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them, I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection, let them make peace with me, let them make peace with me. See those same themes of what we've been reading in 26. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Isaiah sings another song here about the fruit that will come in that day. He states that God's people, God's city will be ripe with fruit. All that hinders God's people from bearing fruit will be removed. The rocky soil will be gone. The tares that spoil the roots of the true wheat will be removed and the people of God will be fruitful. And then he contrasts that Very interestingly, let's take a look at verse 10 with a different type of city that is unfruitful. It's barren. And this is speaking of mankind's fortified city, uh, the people of Judah trying to act in their own protection. He says in 2710, For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. When its bows are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will have no compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. We have in contrast to the fruitful city, a barren city, where the bows of the plants are actually fruitless and stripped bare, and their only use is for firewood. And this is very similar language that Jesus himself used. Take a look at John 15 here up on the screen. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. It's the exact same language. Fruitfulness is what shows us that we are actually in Christ. It's not what earns us being in Christ. It's what shows us. How do we get to one or the other? It's purely by the gracious work of God. Let's take a look at that middle section of 27, verses seven through nine. Has he struck them, meaning his people, as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the discipline that's coming towards Judah. The exile that will get them to either repent or harden their hearts more towards God. He's talking about the discipline of God. He says in verse nine, therefore by this, by this careful, somewhat gracious, well, absolutely gracious, discipline of God, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. Now, we could go into that in a massive way, but I'm going to hold off. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain strong. What the Judahites deserved was total destruction, as God had done with some of the nations around them. But what they were getting was a restrained discipline that corrected them but did not destroy them. And they would receive exile, but in the midst of it, God would be working atonement to cover their sins and sanctification to remove their idolatry so that Yahweh was the only God that they worshipped. And for those that refused to repent from the chastening, the discipline of God, they would become the barren city of verses 10 through 11. So what does all this mean for us? This is all great, Hans. We read what happened to Judah. What does it mean for us? Guys, here's what it means. Here's your application. Check your fruit. We started out today talking about the tale of two cities, but what we must realize with our text today, what God is telling us through his text, and hopefully you can see that I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. What he's telling us is that all of the people discussed in these two chapters would have self-identified As God's people. All of them, both cities. Are you from Judah? Yep. You God's people? Yep. God was pressing them, though, through Isaiah to ask the question, which people do I belong to? Which city do I reside in? What fruit am I seeing in my life? Take a look there at 2712. Speaking of the end of days, when God goes through with all those activities, those four activities we talked about, it says in 27.12, In that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. Notice what he does here. He stops talking about the collective cities, the collective communities, and he starts talking individually to the people within. And he says, you will be gleaned. Now, we don't quite get this, but this is basically the process of taking the, the, the fruit of the grain stalk off of, of the stock and using it for productive purposes. And if it was a wheat, or if it was a a tear or a false-looking piece of wheat that didn't have fruit, actually had poison, it would be taken and thrown to be burned. And who's the one that will be doing the threshing? Who will be doing the gleaning? Uh, uh, Let me read to you Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. I'm just going to read it to you. You don't need to turn there. In Luke 3.16, John the Baptist says this. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Who's doing the work of splitting the two and figuring out what truly has fruit? Jesus himself. And this gleaning will occur within the people of God in the New Testament, the church, just as it did in Israel. Turn with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and take a look at verse 24. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping... That's the leaders of God's church. His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? Look at what Jesus says. No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The gleaning will occur in the church. Guys, it is absolutely wrong of me to stand here on a Sunday and say, every single one of you in here is absolutely assured of salvation. I would make you feel really good and I'd send you out being able to do anything you want because, hey, Hans assured me, he's th- we don't have a priest, but he's kind of close. What it is my faithful duty to do is say to you, I have no idea. I can judge your fruit, and actually that's one of the jobs of the elders. 1 Corinthians 5 says it is our job to judge the fruit of the people in our body and to help them get sanctified. But honestly I have no idea. So whose job is it to check and see if your life is fruitful? It's not mine, it's not Patrick, it's not David, it's not the deacons. Who is it? It's your own. It's your job to check your fruit regularly, often, ongoing until the Lord comes back. Because his criteria will be based on the fruit of our lives in following Christ. How will he glean? It's based on the fruit. It's not how we earn grace. It's how we worked out grace. Take a look with me at Luke 19. Luke 19. This is very similar to the parable of the talents, but it's got some other pieces. and It's uh, the parable of the ten minas, or minas. It says in 1911, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And notice, guys, this is directly under Zacchaeus, the story about him practicing righteousness and justice and receiving the redemption of Christ, okay? So he says, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. This is Jesus leaving the earth, going to receive the kingdom, and coming back. This is what he will do. He says to all of us, his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, And sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Notice this is talking about authority. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Fruitfulness. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Guys, what's that called when you go into somebody's field and you take something that is not yours you didn't sow? It's called stealing. Who is it that comes to lie, kill, steal, and destroy? Satan. Was this servant following Jesus? No. They thought they were following Jesus, but they were following Satan. And so he says to him, I will condemn you with your own words. This is why I love this parable. In the other parable, he doesn't say this. But notice what Jesus says. He says, I'm going to use your words because that's not me, basically. You knew that I was a severe man, you wicked servant, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Notice their question marks. That's how you thought of me? Why then did you not put money into the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Guys, you ever notice how people that are so deathly afraid of God's judgment are actually not really doing anything with their life. I very rarely have seen the Christian who's like, I'm so afraid of God, and they have a legalistic view of God that's actually trying to earn their salvation. Usually it's the person that's sitting back going, I'm just so scared of God, I can't do anything. Well, if they actually thought that God was severe, guess what they'd be doing? They would be spending 24-7, 365 serving the poor, helping the needy, help the homeless. That's never what I see. It's them sitting at home going, I'm so worried God's going to judge me. You should be. You should be. He says, Why then did you not put the money in the bank at least? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And he says, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Guys, what is the mina? It is your talents. It is your gifts. It is your time, your talents, your treasure. Is it multiplying the kingdom of God? It's also the gospel that's been given to you. Is it multiplying the gospel? But how many Christians go, thanks, pastor, I'm saved. Thanks for telling me again this Sunday. Put it in my hanky, put it in my pocket, go about my business. What will Christ say by his own words to that person? Not a good day. What he says is, but as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is, this is Jesus. So guys, trust me, I would rather not teach this passage. I would rather not teach Isaiah. Quick question and answer time. How many of you get tired of the redundancy of wrath and grace in Isaiah? Raise your hand. It's okay, raise your hand. Again, Lord? Well, how many times do your kids say that to you when you say, no, don't do that? It takes repetition to be a good parent, right? It takes correction. That's why Isaiah's hard, guys. How many of you think Isaiah's hard? and you walk out of here sometimes going, oh my goodness, that was so weighty. Ugh, Hans is just a meanie. (laughs) Go ahead, raise your hand. Raise your hand, it's okay. Hans, you're being so mean today. But the reality is, guys, is that this is what the word does to us. And so today I want to ask you, and this is where I'm finishing up here. What's your fruit? Put your pens down and listen to the questions I have for you, and I want you to ask yourself these questions. Have you received the graciousness of God's gospel in Jesus Christ? Have you received his deliverance from what you were to begin the journey of what he has called you to be? Are you changing because of the gospel, or do you find yourself as the exact same person you were? What fruit are you finding in your life because you have accepted the gracious gospel of Jesus? Married people, how is your marriage? Does it reflect the intimacy of Christ and the church? That's fruit. Single people, how is your purity? Married people, that goes for you too, but single people, how is your purity? Does it reflect your love and devotion to Jesus? How are your finances? Do they they reflect the fact that Jesus is king, building his kingdom through you in your life? Or do they reflect that you are building your kingdom and have said, I will not have this man reign over me? Parents, how are your children? Are they walking in the commandments of Christ because you have faithfully modeled for them a lifestyle of daily worship and sacrifice? Or are you pointing the finger at everyone else as to why they're misbehaving? How are your relationships in this church? Are you taking responsibility for the relationships, following the command of Jesus that when someone sins against you, you go to them? Or is there a root of bitterness growing up where you have your finger pointed outward at everyone else? How do you spend your time? Does Jesus get 15 minutes and then you spend 25 minutes trying to at least figure out what you're going to watch on Netflix and then two hours watching it? Does it reflect the fact that Jesus is king in your life? How's your fruit? See, Paul said this to the church at Philippi. Let me read it to you. He said to the church at Philippi, who was honestly his favorite church when you look at his letters, this is what he said. He says in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." To work out your salvation is to realize that the salvation is solely from him. You have done nothing to earn it. Even your sanctification and the working out of your salvation is through what's called the cooperating grace of God that energizes you, works in you to go on behalf of Christ. So I beg of you today, dear church, I beg of you to ask yourself the question, which people do I belong to? Which kind of fruitful vine Am I attached to? In which city am I a citizen? Am I headed towards redemption or wrath? I want to finish with this. This last week was an extremely hard week for my wife and I in many, many different ways. But as I was able in the middle of that to watch as many of you responded to the need to care for DHS and treat yourself, I was able to sit in the midst of one of our, our few in number, but they're mighty, definitely, uh, community groups, and watch you guys love each other in a way that just, like, seriously, I wanted to break into tears. To watch the joy of the people in the midst of this congregation walking out the fruitful life God has called them to. Not one iota of weight was on their shoulders as a burden of legalism because they responded to the love of Jesus by loving. And it did my heart good. And I am so thankful for those of you in this body that do that. In the early 2nd century, the church father Aristides wrote to the Caesar Hadrian to describe Christians, and these are a few of his lines of what he said. But the Christians, O king, while they, wait, while they went about and made search have found the truth, and as we learn from their white writings, they have come nearer to truth and genuine knowledge than the rest of the nations. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and of earth, in whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as companion, from whom they received commandments which they engraved upon their minds and observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very dear brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit and in God. Such, O king, is the commandment of the law of the Christians, and such is their manner of life. For great indeed and wonderful is their doctrine to him who will search into it and reflect upon it. And verily, he says, this is a new people and there is something divine in the midst of them. For those of you who are living out the faith of Jesus Christ, I say keep walking, keep going, work out your salvation and the love of Christ that has been given to you. Keep listening to the word of God and following your convictions that you are faced with and realize that God will say to you on that day, well done and good and faithful servant. There will be a reward for you beyond what you can imagine. And our text today finishes with this in 2713. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria, those who were driven out of the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. That day is coming, God's people, and I rejoice in that day, and I pray that you will look forward to that day and let that eternal promise enter into today to make us a people where the world will look at us and say there is something divine in the midst of them.